the China and the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by Carnegie China, hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome everyone to the fourth panel of the Carnegie Global Dialogue series for 2021 and 2022. My name is Paul Hanley and I'm the director of Carnegie China. And I'm glad to be joined today by colleagues and friends, Philip LaCour, Professor Jia Qingguo, and Dr. Yo Lei Hui, to reflect on recent developments in EU-China relations and the impact of the recent crisis in Ukraine on EU-China relations. And for those of you who are not familiar with our Carnegie Global Dialogue series, this is our 10th year hosting the series. In the past, we've done these dialogues in person in Beijing, of course, uh, but since the pandemic, we've moved to have these discussions virtually. The Carnegie Global Dialogue series is a series of panel discussions which examines China's evolving foreign policy and international role from the perspective of Carnegie scholars at each of our global centers and international experts from across the globe. You'll be able to find uh, replays of this dialogue and all of our previous Carnegie Global Dialogues on Carnegie's China in the World podcast. Turning to today's discussion, uh, I'm delighted to introduce Philip LaCour, Professor Jia Qingguo, and Dr. Yole Hui. Philip LaCour is a non-resident senior fellow in the Europe, Europe program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He specializes in China's global rise, China's relations with Europe and Eurasia, competition in the Asia Pacific region, and China's foreign direct investments. He's also a fellow uh, at a number of institutions at Harvard University, the Kennedy School Center for Business and Government, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. He's a, an affiliate with uh, Harvard's Belfer Center uh, in their program on Europe and the transatlantic relationship. Uh, he's also an associate in research with Harvard's Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, uh, an institution I know well. That's where I, I, I got my master's degree, Philip. So um jealous that you're there. Uh, but you, his extensive career spans both the private and public sectors. He served as a special assistant for international affairs to the French defense minister. He was a senior policy advisor on Asia within the French Ministry of Defense's Directorate for International Relations and Strategy. Uh, he has worked in Asia. He's been a foreign correspondent for almost a decade in Asia, uh, and he's published uh, extensively on the region in a, a variety of reputable uh, journals. So Philip, it's it's a delight to have you on the Carnegie Global Dialogue and it's great to see you again. Thank you for joining. Professor Jiaqing Guo uh, is a professor and former Dean of the School of International uh, Studies at Beijing University. Uh, he's also director of the Institute for Global Cooperation and Understanding. He's also the director of the Center for China and Global Governance at Beijing University. Uh, he is a member of the Standing Committee of the and the Foreign Affairs Committee of the National Committee of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. He earned his PhD from Cornell University. Uh, he's also had a number of overseas teaching assignments uh, in the U.S., uh, University of Vermont, uh, Cornell, UC, UC San Diego, uh, and also in Austri Australia at University of Sydney. He served um, on a couple occasions at the Brookings Institute 
and is a, a serving on the editorial board of more than a dozen established domestic and international academic journals. He's a terrific Chinese scholar, and we're glad to have you uh, on, the, on the program tonight. Thank you for joining us, Professor John. Last but not least, um, we have uh, here with me in Singapore is uh, Dr. Yole Hui. She's the director of the Europe Union Center in Singapore, a renowned international relations expert. She serves as the council secretary at the Singapore Institute of International Affairs. She's an adjunct fellow at the Rajaratnam School of International Studies. Uh, she's also an adjunct faculty at the Singapore Management University. She sits on a number of advisory boards, uh, including the Center for European Studies at the Australian National University and KU Levin's Master in European Studies program. She's written extensively on issues pertaining to Asia-Europe relations. She's written on Asia-Europe meeting dialogue process as well as EU-ASEAN relations. So I think we've got the right scholar to join us tonight uh, with me here in Singapore. Thank you, Dr. Yeo, for joining us. So before we kick off uh, the discussion, let me just mention, number one, uh, we do want the audience to be able to ask our guests questions during today's discussion. And to do that, uh, you will use the chat function uh, on YouTube. Secondly, uh, we'll, as I said, we'll be posting this recording uh, the recording of this discussion as an episode on our China in the World podcast, and you'll be able to find that on, on any major podcast streaming platform. So with that, uh, let's kick off our discussion tonight, and we'll go uh, for one hour, and we've got a lot to cover. Uh, over the last few years, uh, there's been some important shifts in China-EU relations. In 2019, of course, we all remember EU's strategic outlook. Uh, that labeled China both a cooperation partner, uh, but also an economic competitor and a systemic rival promoting alternative models of global governance. But since then, the areas of divergence in EU-China relations seem to have only grown. For example, on human rights, economic and trade policy, uh, and the areas of convergence and cooperation appear more limited today. The recent EU-China summit, which came uh, five weeks after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, ended without any major breakthroughs. Uh, two sides maintained different stances on several issues important to the EU, the crisis in Ukraine, uh, Chinese embargoes on Lithuanian goods, uh, Chinese sanctions against EU lawmakers, just to name a few. That being said, in recent years, EU-China economic ties have continued to grow. Uh, in 2021, trade between China and the EU reached 695 billion euros. And you compare that with US-EU trade, uh, which sits at 631 billion euros. So that makes China, and that makes China the EU's largest trading partner. Moreover, China and the EU have major stakes in many transnational issues like climate change, pandemic pre uh, prevention, uh, and regional instability in places like Afghanistan, Myanmar, and the Korean Peninsula. So to shed more uh, light and more clarity on the trajectory of China-EU relations, uh, I'm gonna kick off our discussion by turning to each of our experts uh, to start out with a 
sort of a basic uh, foundational question. I'll give each of you the chance to offer your assessment of the recent EU-China summit, which I know is on a lot of people's minds. And I'll start with Philip. How, in your view, uh, and do you think the summit was viewed from Brussels and other capitals in Europe? Uh, on Ukraine, uh, China asserts, you know, it has this balanced position. It has good relations with both Ukraine and Russia. It has open channels of communication to the U.S. and Europe. In China's propaganda, of course, it lays the blame squarely on the U.S. and NATO uh, for the crisis, but it is very diplomatic in its international rhetoric, calling for restraint, calling for negotiations, peaceful settlement. Do European uh, officials view China's position as balanced with regard to the Ukraine conflict? And how was this issue addressed at the EU summit? Philip, over to you. Paul, thank you very much. Delighted to be here and uh, in such nice uh, company. Well, quite a lot has already been said about this summit and written, especially with regard to the, the absence of a significant uh, outcome. EU-China meetings tend to be fairly dull and lacking content, I must say, but there was something unusual about this one. The, the Europeans insisted that the main topic would be Ukraine, and in fact, it was. As much as China was willing to focus on other topics, there was nothing it could prevent EU leaders, Charles Michel and Ursula von der Leyen, to focus on the issue of Ukraine. This summit, uh, said Mrs. von der Leyen, was not to be uh, business as usual. And of course, facts about Ukraine have been shocking enough for European leaders uh, to, to, to make their points. China should not, at the very least, get in the way of economic sanctions against Russia. In, this, in that sense, the, the meeting, uh, previous meeting uh, between Wang Yi and uh, Sergei Lavrov, just two days before the summit, was not great for China with mentions of the rock-solid friendship between the two countries, was seen as very offensive uh, towards uh, particularly Eastern European countries that have been receiving millions of Ukrainian refugees. So both von der Leyen and Michel stated that China could not turn a blind eye on Russia's actions. The EU views um, um, basically, uh, you know, a growingly negative public perception of China uh, in, in many European countries. The image of China has been affected by various topics from human rights in Xinjiang and Hong Kong to, to the lack of transparency uh, regarding uh, the pandemic. And now Beijing's apparent support to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, what the Europeans kept repeating on April the 1st is that China holds a very special responsibility to at least not interfere with the economic sanctions over Ukraine. They also stated, you mentioned a few figures, uh, trade figures, Paul, but they, they stated it's very unusual for them to come up with such a comparative uh, data uh, that the EU-China bilateral trade on a daily basis is 330 million euro a day, while Russia-China trade is only 2 million euro a day. This led to no reaction from the Chinese side, which on the other hand has been describing Europe's economic situation as catastrophic. Chinese reports in Xinhua have insisted that this is not our war. 
and that Europe should not lead us into it. The global economy is the construction of long-term efforts by many countries, and therefore economic sanctions should not hurt globalization. That's what China has been saying and writing for many weeks now. Many observers in, in China have been surprised with the EU's unity on the Ukrainian war and on the pushback against Putin's action, a very uni unified one. Another Xinhua statement insisted that Europe should understand China better and have its own independent policy vis-a-vis -vis China. I think Beijing has mistaken the European situation by accusing the EU of aligning itself with the EU US. The strengthening of NATO is a necessity in the face of an increasingly brutal Russia. Finland and Sweden will soon become the 31st and 32nd members of the Atlantic Alliance, and more will follow. French President Emmanuel Macron, who is running for re-election in less than 10 days, has clearly stated that NATO's role has nothing to do with the Indo-Pacific or with Asia. From a den, from brand-date organization, that's what he said, NATO is now a born-again body, thanks to the actions of Xi Jinping's closest ally. Mm. The anti-NATO, anti-American narrative doesn't work in Europe these days. On the other hand, there's no reason why Europe, the world's top trading bloc, should be excluded from Asia. And it is, in fact, you know, very active. I have other points, uh, you know, yeah, about no, the rest you. of the meeting, but I will I will leave it there for the time being. A, a very, 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 very helpful, um, and clearly very, very strong response from the Europeans. Uh, quite strong, you know, in particular, given that China had tried to keep Ukraine off the agenda. Uh, clearly, it was not off of the agenda, and it was front and center in the agenda. And I did notice the statement that was released by the EU uh, was very strong as well. Uh, talking about uh, the importance of addressing the Ukraine crisis. Let's turn uh, now to Beijing, uh, Professor Jia. Um, you know, obviously China has an important strategic partnership uh, with Russia, but it also has important economic and political ties with the EU. Um, can these two relationships be, be reconciled in your view? And, and how is China, China trying to balance its partnership with the EU and with Russia, and despite the misgivings of many in the West, you know, in your view over time, will this be beneficial to China? Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, this is a great discussion. Uh, I think the meeting, uh, uh, the result of the meeting is not a big surprise. Uh, I think EU wants to, uh, persuade China to take side and China has refused. Uh, China's uh, view is complicated. It has three components. One is uh, that every country should be abide by the UN Charter uh, and uh, uh, not resort to use of force to, to deal with uh, international disputes. Uh, in other words, it does not agree to uh, Russia's uh, uh, action. At the same time, China believes that uh, uh, Russia has its own agreements. Uh, and uh, it uh, certainly um, 
uh, felt the threat from the NATO expansion, whether it's psychological or military or political. Uh, so the Russians uh, had a, a real grievance with regard to uh, NATO expansion. And thirdly, China believes that uh, we should resolve this issue peacefully uh, through negotiation uh, and uh, uh, consultation. Uh, so these are the, and China wants to play a role uh, in uh, uh, mediating uh, the conflict. Uh, the problem uh, now is, uh, you know, uh, the, the reason that China has taken this position. Uh, you know, there are quite a few aspects. One is, uh, you know, the China has developed a close relationship with Russia, uh, and in part because of the pressures from the U.S. <laughs> At the same time, the U.S. has taken an increasingly hostile approach, uh, 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 approach toward China. Uh, the relationship between China and the U.S. has deteriorated over time, even after Biden came into office. And then the EU or European countries increasingly sided with the US. So this is the larger background uh, in which China uh, has to make uh, take a position on the uh, e Russia EU uh, 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 Ukraine uh, conflict. Uh, so that's the that's the reason that China uh, has taken the current position. Uh, to persuade China to give up this kind of position is very difficult. Uh, um, whether China can uh, expect a good relationship with Europe, uh, I think it depends uh, not uh, entirely on China. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Probably it depends on the uh, European uh, Europe's choices. Okay, uh, first it needs to respect China's core interests, like Taiwan, uh, to uh, play with the Taiwan issue. Uh, it's like uh, uh, poking your finger into the eyes of China, uh, like uh, you know uh, the. the uh, you know, this is a this is an issue that's uh, that has been uh, the, the most sensitive in Chinese politics, and then uh, to uh, you know human rights issues we can talk about, uh, but then to uh, to follow the U.S. to categorize uh, the, the 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 human rights issue in Ch in China, especially in Xinjiang, in, in in such exaggerated way like genocide, is unacceptable. Okay. Uh, so to China, you know, these uh, these issues uh, uh, should not be uh, uh, allowed to uh, uh, shape our politics, uh, our relationship. Uh, so China hopes that our economic relationship, our shared uh, uh, interests uh, in climate change, um, other as aspects of global uh, governance uh, would uh, uh, help stabilize the relationship. And, and also we have a comprehensive uh, agreement on, on investment. So all these things are serving uh, the interests of both, both sides and, and China hope that the, 
uh, EU would make the take the right uh, decision in terms of uh, making its uh, policy more pragmatic. Uh, so we're not going to balance between uh, uh, the China's position uh, with regard to uh, Russia and uh, uh, its relationship with the US, uh, well, with, with the EU. But instead, we should treat uh, these two things uh, separately. Uh, China will try to uh, play a positive role, constructive role in uh, mediating the conflicts between Russia and Ukraine. Professor Jai, let me ask you uh, just a quickly follow-up question about that in particular, the mediation. Um, and, and one other question about um, sort of state media and propaganda in China. Um, you said that China wants to uh, play a role in mediating. Um, many have said that uh, there's really not the political willpower among the Chinese leadership to play that kind of role. Um, and, and to date, it's really just kind of offered it, but not really taken any concrete actions to, to do, you know, that kind of, you know, uh, that, that kind of political lift that would be required to, to mediate uh, the Ukraine conflict. Is uh, the Chinese leadership serious about wanting to mediate? What kind of role are you uh, referring to that China would want to play? And just the second question is just understanding China's position. You gave out the three components. The second one, you know, Russia has its grievances and, and clearly China has some sympathy with those. I do notice the propaganda and the state media uh, in, in China for the domestic audiences at home uh, clearly is very pro-Russian, very anti-US, anti-NATO, but seems to be intensifying as of late. And I wonder if you could give us a sense What's happening, of course, that's in direct contrast with the very diplomatic language that we hear uh, internationally. And I just wonder if you could give us a sense of why such a strong, intense domestic propaganda at home, pro-Russia, pro anti-US. I think we've lost Professor Jia. Well, until we get the technical difficulties fixed, I'm gonna turn to Dr. Yo. Um, Dr. Yo. Uh, you have have written, uh, Ja, are you back? Yes, I'm back. <laughs> okay. Did you hear uh, my first, question? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, first okay. of all, I think China uh, uh, wants to uh, uh, mediate uh, because China is in China's interest. China does not benefit from this kind of conflict. And China believes that all the parties want to have some kind of a peaceful settlement. Uh, but when is the good time for the sides to sit down and talk to each other uh, uh, in, in real terms? I think that probably uh, uh, will be decided by, uh, first by what's, happen, uh, what's happening on the battlefield. Uh, you know, if, if there is a real stalemate, uh, then uh, probably the Russians would be more willing to uh, uh, engage in serious discussion. Uh, mm -hmm. And then uh, although it also depends on domestic politics in the US and also in uh, uh, EU countries, uh, whether they are, uh, they would uh, like to have some kind of a peaceful settlement. Uh, so um, 
China, uh, regardless of all these, uh, I think it's in China's uh, uh, interest to uh, play a role of mediation. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether uh, this process has already begun or not, uh, but I think uh, there are pl plenty of good reasons for China to play a constructive role. Whether this would yeah. bring peace or not, right. depends. Yeah, and or, or whether it would bring a full restoration, of course, of uh, Ukraine's sovereignty. That's really the question, you know, and in any mediation, you have to figure out what the outcome is that you're looking to achieve, which would be a key question, I think, before, you know, any any country plays that role. Can you give us a sense, and then I want to turn to Dr. Yo on the domestic propaganda and state media in China? Why so intense? I mean, I've noticed they've picked up stories, the Russian disinformation stories around secret uh, bioweapons labs uh, run by the Americans in, in Ukraine, which, you know, clearly are part of a Russian disinformation campaign. Think, you know, also, uh, you know, kind of um, dismissing the, 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 the atrocities that were committed in, in, in Bukha and um, Carrying other other stories that Russia propaganda and state media run as well. Well, I think um, uh, on the question of Bucha, uh, uh, I think I haven't seen uh, you know a lot of uh, uh, pro-Russian uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, stories, uh, but uh, uh, certainly on the uh, you know uh, virus lab. Uh, uh, I think uh, 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 this probably has a lot to do with the, uh, you know, the inclination of uh, believing. Uh, you know, China used to be uh, accused of uh, uh, manufacturing virus. Uh, you know, uh, in the in the Chinese lab uh, by the uh, by the U.S. and also by some people in the West. Uh, so uh, there is a sort of inclination on the part of the Chinese to, to uh, believe that the, you know, <laughs> the, this uh, applies to the U.S. So now, nowadays, because of the deterioration of uh, relations between China and the U.S., there is a huge amount of distrust and the willingness to believe the, you know, the other side can do the worst possible thing. Uh, right. So right. This probably has uh, the moment, uh, created the momentum. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Yeo, uh, you have written uh, that the EU has never been more united uh, in the face of the greatest challenge to peace in Europe. Uh, in the wake of the war in Ukraine, uh, we've seen over 40 countries come together to impose economic sanctions on Russia, which does show quite a bit of unity in the face of, of Russia's invasion. Do you think that that unity on the war in Ukraine will extend to the EU and US dealings with China? Does it strengthen US-EU coordination vis-a-vis -vis China? Some scholars argue the opposite, that the recent increases, for example, in defense spending announced by countries like Germany, Belgium, Italy, Poland, that, these could, that this could lead Europe to pursue more strategic autonomy in its foreign relations. How do you see this? I think you're on mute still, sorry. But I think, yeah, well, um, first let me 
say something uh, about the summit, the EU-China summit, which I thought was very interesting. Right? When uh, Joseph Borrell, the high representative for the for EU's foreign affairs and security policy, lamented that uh, it was like a dialogue uh, of the deaf, uh, which is sometimes I think what is a problem uh, in some of these uh, meetings when each one uh, has. Stood firm on his on his on his position and do not really hear each other out, right? So I think this is one of the problem that we face uh, some uh, in 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 some of these summits uh, uh, in on EU and China. Then your question on the unity, I think. Let me go back a little bit before the war started uh, in in Ukraine. Just a few weeks when you know the US was was. Saying that the you know the Russia is going to invade soon and and at that time when uh, uh, Zelensky even said that well make a joke that well they are going to come on the 16 but they didn't come so I think at, even at that at that point of time I have heard narratives from China right coming out saying that you know this this whole uh, 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 crisis in Ukraine is really uh, being manufactured uh, by the US right. Uh, 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 because U.S. wanted to stop the EU from developing its strategic autonomy because we know that in the years during Trump's administration, the EU were really concerned that, you know, NATO is brain dead and that we should really develop our strategic autonomy and, 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 and all that. And, and, uh, and so, so now you have Biden come in, there's this desire to, to, to uh, get back the alliance, to, to, uh, rebuild the alliance and really to stop so-called the trends towards uh, EU's strategic autonomy and to make also the EU realize that uh, uh, that it is actually dependent on the US-led NATO uh, in its security uh, and in, in confronting Russia. So, so the idea is that once that is realized by manufacturing crisis in Ukraine, when the time comes for the US to confront China, then the U.S. expects the EU to be in some way in lockstep with U.S. actions. So that was a kind of narrative. And I think, you know, if you, again, if you look at it, uh, of course, I, I am concerned uh, to some extent that hopefully we will not see uh, EU-China relations being viewed only through the, through the lens of the Ukraine war. I think there's much more in the relationship that both can continue to try and build on because if you just view the relationship through the lens of the Ukraine war, then I think, uh, like I said, it could lead to this very binary autocracy against democracy kind of mindset, uh, which would not be helpful in, uh, uh, to me, at least to, in, in trying to uh, think of a much more uh, 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 inclusive and at least a, a, a much more open space or much more, explore more possibilities of how we, how we can really help uh, to try and resolve the Ukraine uh, crisis. Thank you very much. It's a it's, an, it's a, a very important point about viewing the relationship solely through the lens of the Ukraine war. There's a risk there of doing that. And I, I want to I want I want to turn that into my next question for all three of you actually, which is, you know, going forward, um, you know, how do you see the just the broader China EU relationship evolving? Um, as Dr. Yeo mentioned, there's many other things that are on the agenda. You know, I started out by mentioning the EU strategic outlook uh, in 2019, uh, which was very strong 
uh, in terms of the areas that EU hope to cooperate uh, with China on. A number of transnational issues, climate change, um, trade and economics, a range of others. Um, but there is a risk, as Dr. Yo says, that, that, that this crisis uh, in Ukraine um, will damage the relationship and, and could cause some of those other areas um, to not uh, develop or pro progress. So uh, let me turn to Philip to start this round of questions. How do you think the Ukraine issue will impact the broader EU-China relationship over the long run? So, Paul, I think it's impacting the, the relationship tremendously. Uh, you know, uh, all my contacts with Chinese colleagues over the past few weeks have been, you know, we've it's been a dialogue of the death. Sorry about repeating that sentence. In the sense that people don't don't seem to realize in China how impactful, how dreadful this war has been. It it is affecting every single European country. The pictures of people being assassinated, tortured, raped, and everything has just been, you know, in everybody's minds for the past six weeks. Um, this is not not a small issue. And uh, so it's very important, going back to my original statement, that, that you know, China uh, at least doesn't get in the way of the, of the uh, sanctions. And I think yeah, that leads, of course, to other... Uh, um, you know, discussions about, uh, you know, a, a possible uh, uh, fronts in, in, in the Indo-Pacific or, or in Asia that we all have in mind. But just to go back to your, to your question, Paul, I think, you know, uh, of course, there are many issues which the EU is willing to discuss with China. I don't think the door is closed. I think there will be more meetings. The relationship is certainly not as bad as the US-China relationship, but uh, on the economic front, as we said, there are many, many, uh, you know, uh, things going on. But uh, there are, there's also the COVID issue. And of course, uh, a number of European companies are not very satisfied with the way uh, the pandemic has been handled for the past uh, year in particular. And many expats not being able to go back and, and, and things like that, the current lockdowns. I mean, I don't want to drag the conversation in, into this, but let me just say that um, also on the on this on the CHI, on the comprehensive agreement on investment. Mm -hmm. Of course, mm -hmm. there was some progress being made uh, through this uh, uh, agreement, which was discussed for seven years, which is a very long time for an agreement, even by EU standards. Um, but uh, the problem is uh, the EU has to stand for its values, for its principles. It has a principled diplomacy, as Mr. Borrell wrote recently. And um, the fact, um, um, you know, um, uh, members of the European Parliament, the Europe, European Parliament is the one that is ratifying uh, international agreements, including the CHI. So uh, as long as these MEPs are being sanctioned by China, it's going to be very difficult to, to, to ratify the CHI, at least for the next two years. Um, so we should be continuing talking about climate, uh, biodiversity, how to prevent the next pandemic and whatever. But on, on the economic front, it's also not so clear how we're going to get out of this. And meanwhile, um, you know, the relationship is not as smooth as it was uh, uh, before uh, in terms of uh, Chinese investments in Europe or, or European investments in, 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 in China. What's working well is trade, but with a huge 
you know, mm. uh, deficit, of course, in China's favor. Yeah. Philip, let me just ask a quick follow-up question uh, tangentially on this issue of China as a mediator. I know the EU foreign policy chief at one point, Burrell, uh, at one point suggested that China consider to play that role. Is there a desire or an appetite in the EU to have China play a role uh, as mediator in the Ukraine conflict? I think the expectations are very low, Paul, because uh, we know that China has been has been sending very clear signals that it does not to want want to be part of this war, uh, nor does it want to be part. It maybe want to be part of a settlement, but we are far from that. As as you can see from from the situation in in Ukraine, well, every day we discover new massacres and new uh, you know dreadful actions by the by the Russian military or by, by mercenaries hired by Russia, which is even worse because these are not even conventional militaries. Um, so of course the ideal situation would be for China to, to side with the EU. And by the way, the EU is not following the US view on this. This is, this is something that's happening to a European country that is neighboring uh, five or six EU members, including uh, Poland and, and, and Hungary and, and, and uh, Romania. So um, I think, you know, of course, we would be very happy, the EU would be very happy to, to, to see China um, uh, offering its help. But I'm not quite sure how, since it obviously doesn't want to sacrifice its very close, its friendship without limits, that, that was announced and reaffirmed many times since February the 4th. Thank you very much. Professor Ja, over to you. What's your view of how the Russia-Ukraine war will impact the broader EU-China relationship? Will the two sides be able to compartmentalize, so to speak, their, their differences over Ukraine in the interest of maintaining broader stability in the EU-China relationship? Do you think that'll be possible over the, the mid to, to long term? Well, that would be the uh, desirable in the short run, uh, but in the long run, it cannot last. Uh, I think uh, somehow China has to uh, seize the opportunity to uh, uh, intervene uh, like uh, through uh, mediation, uh, to play a more active role in mediation. And, and of course, uh, uh, you know, whether we can have a settlement or not, that's uh, that's a, uh, not uh, uh, determined, but uh, uh, serious mediation and try to reason to concerned parties uh, about con the disaster, the continuation of war would bring to each side. Uh, I think uh, China can use its, uh, uh, well, can have a, a, a its voice heard, uh, uh, and 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 of course, uh, I think of to, but but to ask China to take side uh, on this uh, without giving China any assurance, uh, that's uh, not not that's wishful thinking, uh, because uh, you know China is on the. It is on the receiving end of uh, international of uh, pressures from the U.S., uh, hostile pressures from the U.S., and also on the receiving end of uh, 
concerted efforts <laughs> on the part of the EU with the US. Uh, and, and why should China give up uh, Russia as partner? Uh, okay. Uh, however, and what kind of assurances. Uh, give me give me a, a sense of the kind of assurances that that China would would be looking for in this context. Well, stop messing with uh, Chinese domestic politics like uh, Taiwan, uh, and uh, uh, and also uh, stop exaggerating the human rights situation in China uh, to the negative. You uh, know, I mean, like Xinjiang to say it's a genocide. That's yeah. that's ridiculous. Yeah. But so so all these things, you know. Uh, you you can't poke in the eyes of the Chinese and say you know help me. Uh. Mm. Thank you, Doctor Yo. You you kicked off this round by cautioning that the relationship between the EU and China not be viewed solely through the the lens of the Ukraine crisis. In your view, is that possible going forward? Is it practical? Uh, can the two sides, as I mentioned before, compartmentalize their differences over Ukraine? In the interest of other issues within the broader relationship. Oh, still on mute. Sorry. I think it's going to be difficult because um, I mean, just taking on from Professor Chia's uh, uh, comment on poking the Chinese in the eyes and the reassurance. I mean, if you look at the way the 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 West or the U.S. have treated the Chinese and the way they have treated India. India has also not condemned uh, China and abstained from the from the uh, UN uh, uh, General Assembly resolution. Yet in the in the recent meeting in the in the in the phone call, what the what the US was trying to do was tell India that they will try to make sure India will be able to get the oil it's, it's what it wants and all that. So so the very different treatment, right? That 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 shows in some way that. That uh, uh, somehow China is being targeted uh, by the West, and they of course feel that kind of uh, 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 suspicion. And of course, as I as I caution, I think uh, uh, you know US, the EU's engagement with China will become much more uh, circumscribed by this need to be closely aligned with the US and to project this so-called uh, absolute Western unity in the face of the Russian threat. So I think you know that the war in Ukraine really has driven the Europeans to see the relation, its relations uh, with China as a function of how the Chinese position itself in the war, right? So I think, from my perspective, this is quite uh, short-sighted. Uh, of course, puts the Chinese in a very tight spot. Uh, the Chinese, I think, are truly caught in this uh, uh, between the devil and the deep blue sea, as they say. Uh, I think. Actually, China's so-called no limits partnership with Russia, I think, has some limits. So I think uh, we should try to explore that opportunity to see how the West can really bring China on board rather than push China away by this kind of very binary autocracy against democracy kind of uh, framing. Yeah, because I think while the Chinese uh, would like to see the US uh, hegemony being challenged, I think the Chinese also understand that they have benefited uh, from the US-led uh, global order, the, especially the globalization, the free trade. 
So I don't think they want a revolution to really upend this order entirely. What they want is some sort of reforms, maybe have a, a more say and more influence uh, in that structure. So I think in, in that sense, uh, uh, if um, uh, the West become much more aware uh, of the need really to share power uh, with the emerging powers, right, and start a real conversation, not a, not a, a dialogue of the death, uh, you know, a real conversation with China and other emerging powers on, on how to reform the global institutions uh, that emerged in the post-World War II uh, world, I mean, post-1945, and, and to really make these uh, global institutions much more, much more fit for purpose uh, for the 21st century world. So I think uh, if the West can be a bit more uh, uh, open-minded, uh, and be more willing to share power and look at this relationship in a broader context of how we can really uh, uh, take this opportunity to reform uh, the global institutions. I think uh, that could be a more win-win kind of uh, scenario uh, that I'm hoping for rather than this uh, narrow uh, uh, framing of autocracy against uh, democracy. Thank you very much. We've got about 15 minutes and I have to say questions are flowing in. Um, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn to some of the, the questions now. And the first one's gonna go to Philip. Uh, Harvey Zodin, uh, who's normally in Beijing, I believe is, uh, I know he's in Europe now. Um, he says the EU's interests don't always completely overlap with the US uh, when it comes to China. Um, is there a role for the EU to mediate or provide a balance between the US and China? Or is the EU mostly, for all practical purposes, in the same boat as the US vis-a-vis -vis China? Philip? No, I, I mean, I, I would actually uh, um, say that, um, uh, of course, the EU has its own uh, policy. I mean, it may appear in some in some cases that you know it, uh, it's aligned with the United States, but actually it's not. And I think the idea uh, behind the CHI was to, to go back, going back to your, 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 your word, Paul, compartmentalization of, of the relationship, which is a very difficult word to pronounce, but it's, it's also a very complicated con concept. <laughs> um, for that reason, um, because I think, you know, originally that was, an idea that uh, you know Europe was able to deal on economic matters, on the environment, which is a, a critical issue for the whole world. That is something everybody agrees. We should talk about climate, 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 climate. But actually, there are also issues there, like the coal factories and so on. But um, but the problem is again. I mean, the 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 the, the, the war in Ukraine. There is a war going on. It's very difficult to have a, a rational conversation, very peaceful. Let's not accuse each other. Let's go for win-win. It's easy to say when you have people being being killed and when you have millions of refugees again flowing uh, onto Europe. This is a this is a major crisis, which I think you know. Um, People should acknowledge, even in the United States, which is not uh, not obvious. Um, it, this is not an, a U.S. crisis either. <laughs> but mm. for for China to ask, you know, uh, um, Europe to not to follow the U.S. and not to follow NATO, when NATO is actually the only organization that is actually organized besides national European armies, and and and. Uh, 
a growing uh, European defense mechanism, which is not in place yet fully. And I certainly would wish that to happen because I don't believe NATO should be the only military umbrella for the EU, which would go in the direction of having separate poles, you know, a European pole with its own defense and a US-led pole. So I think, you know, um, I think Europe on the long run would want to play that role. That's certainly what Macron has been saying, and it looks like he's going to be re-elected in two weeks. Uh, it's also the German position. Germany, we haven't spoken about it, but is very reliant on Russian energy. Uh, it's German uh, industry is also very reliant on the on the Chinese uh, market, uh, which means these are all good reasons also. But by the way, China is also very uh, dependent on the uh, 420 million consumers of the European market. So this is actually, you know, we, we do have a lot of business going on, but at the moment it's, it's very, everything is polarized due to this mm -hmm. major international crisis. Thank you. We have a question for Professor Ja uh, from uh, Morton Holbrook. Um, and and um, it, it's around the issue. I mean, I guess I would uh, add to the question and, and the, you know, whether or not um, there are the, the Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the full invasion of Ukraine, has it strained relations at all between China and Russia? Um, you know, uh, we get the sense that uh, perhaps China was surprised here, and in particular, you know, the Chinese leader uh, who had met with the Russian president and announced the no limit strategic partnership less than three weeks before the invasion. Morton Holbrook's question is, Professor Jia, do you think Russia fully informed China of its plan to conduct a full scale invasion into Ukraine at the uh, summit uh, prior to the invasion uh, around the Olympics? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, uh, my hunch, uh, or my, uh, as far as I can uh, find out, is uh, uh, no. <laughs> uh, he did not uh, inform uh, the Chinese leaders about his uh, uh, planned uh, warfare. Um, whether this uh, war has strained the relationship, uh, I think uh, in some to some extent, it has strained, and in other aspects, it has enhanced the relationship. Uh, so it cancel they cancel out each other. Uh, in terms of uh, you know, the, China was not informed about this war, and Russia has no obligation to do that because we are not uh, allies. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it will be better. You know, if China will be informed, then China has an opportunity to explain its positions to the to the Russians and for its consideration, its consideration, uh, and maybe it will not do it. Uh, and uh, uh, but but then, uh, without informing China, the, it started this large scale uh, military operation, and 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 of course, uh, China was put on the spot whether to side with uh, Russia, which in principle, it does not <laughs> believe that this is the right thing to do and uh, or not to side Russia and, and losing a, 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 a friend. <laughs> uh, so this is a hard uh, thing to do. Uh, 
But on the other hand, you know, after the outbreak of the war, Russia has no resort than uh, no other great power as a partner, uh, and and of course China is still there. So uh, in a way, uh, it strengthened the relationship in this in this way. But I, I want to say, people often say that China said that there are no limits of the of cooperation between China and Russia. Uh, but China also said, uh, many Chinese also say there are bottom lines. Uh, even though there are no limits of cooperation, there are bottom lines <laughs> in terms of uh, how, uh, you know uh, what you, what you do. Uh, so we, we don't want to we don't we, we, we hope that you you will not <laughs> uh, go through the, the, the bottom line. <laughs> so that does not mean yeah. that we, we, we would uh, work cooperate and support whatever you uh, Russia does. Yeah. We've got a, a, a question from John Dobson about NATO for Professor Job, but before I turn to that, I want to turn to Dr. Yo about NATO and ask her a question. Last week, uh, NATO held a foreign minister's meeting uh, with representatives from Ukraine, Georgia, Sweden, and Finland, uh, as well as uh, four countries in the Asia Pacific, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand. Stoltenberg stated that NATO will increase its cooperation with Asia Pacific partners in areas like cyber, new technologies, disinformation, maritime security, climate change, and supply chain resilience. Dr. Yo. How do countries in Asia, in your view, and in Southeast Asia in particular, view the potential for greater coordination with Europe on economic and security issues in Asia? Oh, still on mute. Let me perhaps focus uh, uh, more on what I think Southeast Asia think about some of these issues, right? Because after all, my real research interest has been on the EU-ASEAN uh, relations. I think. Just to go back, when the EU published its uh, strategy for cooperation uh, in the Indo-Pacific in September last year, this was warmly welcomed by the Southeast Asian countries, I think, uh, that are part of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, ASEAN. I think because the EU's Indo-Pacific strategy acknowledged the centrality of ASEAN uh, and not all this quad and AUKUS and all that, and, and took the same so-called open inclusive, uh, 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 collaborative approach uh, as the ASEAN's outlook on the Indo-Pacific. So the priorities on the EU's uh, uh, Indo-Pacific strategy on things like ocean governance, digital connectivity, uh, green transition, uh, human security, are also very aligned with ASEAN's interests. So we are very much development focused, I think, in Southeast Asia. Uh, we do not want to bring in this kind of NATO sort of close alliance, uh, 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 we think it's going to create more problems than answer uh, uh, the problems, that the answer the, the, yeah. the, you know, they solve the mm -hmm. problems, right? So for us, when we saw that the EU was quite serious in engaging the Indo-Pacific uh, in its own term, uh, because the, there was an appointment of the EU uh, Indo ambassador for the Indo-Pacific, and then there was, of course, uh, France, uh, France, which was holding the EU presidency, uh, hosted the first ever ministerial uh, forum for cooperation uh, in the Pacific in February. Uh, and, and, and the fact that China and the US was not invited to this ministerial forum 
was perhaps to, to, to the Southeast Asians, a signal that the EU is really determined uh, to have a so-called so -called strike a third way, right, in its own outreach to the vast uh, Indo-Pacific region. So the EU wants to cement to itself a role in the Indo-Pacific uh, that is less about geopolitical confrontation between the US and China, but really about a more comprehensive engagement with the other Indo-Pacific partners for mutual commercial benefits and address common challenges on climate, green transition, etc. So this is very much welcome, I think, by the Southeast Asians who wants the EU to engage the Southeast Asian countries on their own merit and mm -hmm. not let the US-Sino rivalry define their relationships. And I think this is one thing that, uh, uh, that is very clear, that we do not want the relationship to be seen as against anyone, but really we want a more open, collaborative, development-focused uh, relationship. Uh, so, so that yeah. would be my sort of roundabout way to answer yeah. your question on the NATO. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've just got a couple minutes, and I'm going to turn to Professor Ja and then uh, turn to Philip at the end to close this out. I'm going to ask you to be brief so that we can end on time. Uh, Professor Ja, uh, just want to ask you about China's view of NATO's growing involvement in the region. Um, Wang Yi, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, and others have warned countries in the region against forming so-called exclusive alliances like NATO. Professor Yo just talked about that. Um, is there concern in China that Russia's invasion of Ukraine could in fact lead to smaller countries in the Asia Pacific region to begin to form more balancing coalitions to protect their own security? And then the question from John Dobson in particular was, um, you said that Russia was threatened by NATO expansion. Do you mean to say that countries on Russia's borders who felt threatened by Russia should not be able to protect themselves by joining an alliance like NATO? Well, NATO expansion has already caused a war in Europe. Uh, we don't want replication in the region. Uh, so uh, if EU wants to do business uh, and to develop ties, political, economic, and other uh, other fronts, they are welcome. But NATO is a military organization. Uh, it's not welcome. Uh, uh, so uh, that's, I think, China's position. And to, to respond to John Dobson's question, um, you know, should these countries that joined NATO, if they felt threatened by Russia, not have been allowed to make that sovereign decision to do so? Well, sometimes uh, uh, you have to take into account of the result. Okay. Uh, whether the result is uh, conducive to your security or not. Okay. The intention may be harmless, but the result may, be, uh, may not be. Uh, harmless. So uh, uh, I think both NATO and these countries have to take into uh, account of, uh, uh, you know, uh, the realities. Uh, you know, the, Russia is a big country uh, with nuclear weapons. Uh, 
you don't want to develop a confrontational approach with Russia. Uh, somehow you have to live with it uh, and try to develop a relationship of peaceful coexistence rather than you know, uh, taking a confrontational approach. Uh, whether you live or die in that kind of, put yourself into that kind of situation, that's not, a, not, not the, the pra pragmatic <laughs> way of uh, conducting business in international relations. Thank you, Professor Jia. Um, Philip, you're going to get the last word tonight uh, or this morning for you. Um, it's been a terrific discussion. What, in your view, how, how help us understand Europe's primary economic, diplomatic, and security interests in Asia? What tangible initiatives do you think NATO and other European institutions could pursue in Asia going forward? So NATO, again, is a transatlantic alliance. It's got nothing to do with Asia. Um, uh, there's no plan at all to expand NATO in Asia. There was one exception, which was Afghanistan. We, we saw the results. And, and in, in any case, the Europeans had left long ago from, the, from that front. Um, but I would just remind everyone again that, you know, you've had new countries joining NATO recently, the Baltic states, Montenegro, and, and now neutral countries like Finland and Sweden, who were adamant they would never join NATO. And now they are, they are the ones asking to join NATO. So it's not NATO looking for members. It's people who feel scared, threatened by, by Russia. Um, I think the, you know, Dr. Yao's point about the Indo-Pacific strategy of the EU is very important. Uh, it's, uh, I, I fully agree with her. Um, uh, you know, this took place uh, in a, in a you know relative uh, silence uh, on, on you know in, on on the U.S. side, but uh, but actually it is important because that means the the uh, Europeans are getting organized. We live in a world of you know uh, multipolar world. Really, this is really happening now, and then the European poll has the rights to interact with the Asian poll, um, whether it's you know, a large Asian poll or whether it's Southeast Asia or, or China or India, you can divide it as, with as, as many polls as you want. But I, that includes the economic front, that includes climate change and the Paris Accord of 2015 was a rather successful one in that sense. And that includes other things, including international governance and global trade. Um, so I think, you know, there, are, there, there is hope for this relationship to, to expand, and I don't believe Asia, uh, Europe will uh, expand militarily into Asia, that's for sure. But for the time being, you know, NATO is playing a useful role in helping many of these European countries, but this is not going to go beyond um, the transatlantic alliance as it is. Thank you, Philip. Thank you, Professor Jiaqing Guo. Great to see you. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Uh, Yo Lei Hui, uh, here in Singapore with me. It's a terrific discussion. I appreciate all of you joining and sharing your perspectives and being as candid and straightforward as you can. I thought it was a terrific discussion. And I want to thank everyone else who was watching. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for the questions. And I'm sorry I didn't get to everybody's questions, but when you only have one hour, you can only do so much. And of course, thank you to the staff at Carnegie China for pulling this together. Uh, be sure to check out Carnegie China's uh, website for more of our research. We look forward to seeing you again. Thank you.